0: Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 as we continue in this mini-series during our emphasis on global missions. As you're turning there, I want to encourage you, I hope you and your family are giving ample prayer to considering what you would give, what you would sacrifice above your normal tithes and offerings to be part of our annual global missions offering. In your bulletins, you'll see the half sheet there where you can... Uh, uh, sign up and give your pledge or your gift there's also cards in the pews and that will be next Sunday next Sunday we will have a special offering to receive those a second offering during the service to receive those as part of our global missions emphasis I also hope you'll come back tonight as we'll be sharing uh, some pictures and a few brief testimonies from our last trip to Ecuador which just happened uh, about six weeks ago or so and so that'll be a wonderful time together Our text this morning is Acts 13, verses 44 through 52. Please follow along with me. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust to the side and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Father God, we are so grateful for Your grace which is always sufficient. We are frail, faultful creatures. Even as Your children, Lord, we still struggle daily against the flesh. But oh, how we are gloriously reminded each and every day, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus How wonderful, Lord, that You remind us through Your Word that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are gracious and faithful, Father. And Christ is a wondrous Savior. As we go to Your Word this morning, Lord, lift up Christ before us. That as we behold Him, Lord, we may love Him As we love Him, Lord, our confidence in Him may grow. And that we, Lord, in our love for Him, will be inspired to go forth more fervently in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and around the globe to tell others of His love. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Many of you will remember back at the beginning of the summer, I recommended a couple books to us, and one of them was this book called The King's Night. This is a modern-day parable written by a man, uh, uh, Matthew Blythe, that graduated from Southeastern Seminary, and this has just been such an excellent book, especially uh, to to our family and to my children. I wanted to use a, a story at the beginning of my sermon that is told in this book. As you get near the end of the book, again, the book centers around a character named Jonathan, and the book begins with his salvation, with him being rescued out of the dungeons by the king. And the the story then traces, the book then traces his story as a believer in Christ and what he goes through really in a process of sanctification, learning and growing and deepening in his faith and deepening in his dependence upon his king. When you get near the end of the book, when you get to chapter 17, by this point, the, the book is culminated in a battle that is going into the great east. And the king, who represents God, has summoned all of his troops and told them to advance into the, t- into the enemy territory, to go on the offensive and, and to take back ground that belongs to the one true king. So Jonathan dutifully reports to the front, and when he arrives at the front, he founds that the armies of his lord are not advancing, they're entrenched. They initially tried to follow the king's orders, but because their losses were so great and because the enemy army was led by a terrifying dragon, they suffered a number of casualties and therefore they pulled back and they entrenched themselves. And there they remained. And Jonathan, as he arrives at the camp, just can't understand why. Why his fellow citizens of the kingdom have lost faith in the king. Why they have decided to entrench themselves rather than advancing as the king has ordered. In case you don't see it yet, brothers and sisters, as I read that, I thought this really represents the modern day church. Rather than advancing We have become content to be entrenched. Our fear of the enemy's power has eclipsed our confidence in the power of our king. The story goes on and Jonathan really takes it upon himself to obey the king's orders whether or not anyone else will go with him. And so he steps out onto the battlefield and he he begins to prepare to make a charge against the enemy all on his own. And what's so beautiful and how it's represented in the book, as he steps out into the middle of the battlefield, away from the entrenchments, he's able to see that up on the hilltop to the right sits the king. And as he steps out onto the battlefield, it is the king that salutes him for being obedient to his orders to engage the enemy. Brothers and sisters, that really sets the stage for what I hope we would glean from the text before us this morning. As we come to the book of Acts again, we are in the early days of the first church. We have missions going forth almost immediately. And we see persecution arise against those who are, who are preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even though person, persecution arises, the boldness of the apostles is not diminished because their confidence is not in themselves, because they are not fearful of the wiles and, and, and ploys of the enemy, but because their confidence is in the King. And they know that the harvest is certain. So we're going to walk through this text this morning in four points. My first point this morning is this. We're going to consider the barrier of religion without faith. The barrier of religion without faith. Acts 13 opens up with a worship and fasting service that's going on at the church in Antioch. And during that meeting, the Holy Spirit spoke and told the church to set aside Paul and Barnabas for missions work. So the church called them up and laid hands on them and sent them off to share the gospel and plant churches in Asia Minor. First, they went to Salamis and Cyprus and preached in the synagogues. While there, they won the proconsul to faith in Christ. From there, they went on to Poseidon Antioch, where they also presented the gospel in a synagogue on the Sabbath. The Jews there listened intently, and they they wanted to hear from them again the following Sunday. Back up with me into Acts 13. Look at verses 42 and 43. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so that service ended on a high note. People are asking questions. They're begging to hear more of the Word. They're already making plans. All right, come back and talk to us about this next week. Well, in the intervening week, those who had believed the gospel evidently went out and shared Christ with everyone they knew. Word spread throughout the whole city so that on that following Sabbath day, the whole city assembled to hear the word that that these men had brought. Think about that. That's just amazing. After one church service, the majority of a whole city coming out to hear the gospel. That's awesome, right? Well, the Jews didn't think so. The Jews, unfortunately, were still arrogant and racist enough to think that the Messiah was only for them, that they alone were God's chosen people, and that the Gentiles were only worthy to be objects of God's wrath. Thus, the text says here, they were filled with jealousy. Look there in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Those people that the week before were begging to hear more of the Word were now contradicting it. They were refuting and speaking against what Paul and Barnabas taught. Ultimately, their their contradictions gave way to full-scale blasphemy. That is the word that is used here in the Greek. They were blaspheming God. Their prejudice had led them to revile and come against and refute in every possible way the very teaching of God's Word. Rather than being followers of the one true God and students of His Word, their jealousy had led them to become God-haters. And this is the first thing, brothers and sisters, that we should understand. Because of sin, there will always be God-haters in the world. There will be. There will be purposeful God-haters. These are secularists atheists who want to wipe God out of the human equation who want to dismiss God and say that he is nothing but a fairy tale that his word is nothing but a bunch of made-up stories and that man would be better off if we would eschew ourselves of all of this religious dogma then in addition to the purposeful God haters there are the practical God haters These are people who profess some idea of God. They might even agree, yes, I believe there is a God, yet they live in a way every day that blasphemes the God they say they know. And so practically, they hate God by how they live totally for themselves, rejecting what the true knowledge of God should do and be for them. A third group, however, are the religious God-haters, the religious God-haters. These are people who claim to believe in God. They even claim oftentimes to know Christ. They may even be able to throw some scripture at you, but it is still all about them and their life, their choices, what they want to do, and what they have done to come to that point in their lives is they are no longer worshiping or serving the God of the Bible they have constructed a God of their own making they have taken the God of the Bible and they say well I don't like that and I don't like that he says that so I'll ignore that and I'll take that away oh and now I have a version of God that I prefer I have a version of God that serves me and therefore that I would be happy to worship that's exactly what the Jews did brothers and sisters and that's exactly what we do in human sin these people have religion but not true faith and therefore they become some of the strongest opponents of true gospel ministry think about that when we talk about missions and when we talk about evangelism and when we talk about the word going forth if you've ever engaged in true evangelistic ministry it's interesting to note that it's not the atheists that are most often out there fighting us it's people who say They believe in the one true God as well and that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. And that just brings us back to this reality, brothers and sisters, that we live in a world that is tolerant toward everything but biblical truth. The lost do not want to hear what we have to say about sin, judgment, hell, and salvation through Jesus Christ alone. But in many ways, religious people are far more treacherous because they stand against the truth of God in the name of God. They too are lost, they are deceived about their salvation, and yet they claim to have a more accurate knowledge of the gospel and of the nature of God. Paul was writing about these kind of people in 1 Timothy 3 when he said, these people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lover of pleasure lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness but denying its power brothers and sisters we would do well To understand that this is a reality of the world we live in, that there are many who profess faith in Christ, and yet they are deceived and their deception is borne out in how they stand against the truth of God's word, against the gospel of Jesus Christ, against the exclusivity of salvation in his name alone. But at the same time, we should also take hope because not even these deceived persons are beyond the reach of Christ. You know, as I think about this room and how I know so many of you as your pastor, I know that there were many of you, you were at a place in your younger life where you were very religious, where you thought you had a right understanding of things. And yet, in your deception, God's grace flowed even to you. Christ came in all his magnificence and opened your eyes and showed you the deception of your heart and brought you to himself, made you his very own child. That's what the grace of God does, brothers and sisters. That is what the grace of Christ does in us. It cuts away that callousness of our hearts so that we may behold and know and savor the greatness and the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord because of his work in us. Not even those who are faithless in religion are beyond the grace, are beyond the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That takes me to my second point, brothers and sisters. The boldness in proclaiming God's Word. That's the next thing we see. The boldness in proclaiming God's Word. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are turning to the Gentiles so Paul and Barnabas as they were met with this animosity from the Jews they didn't shrink back they didn't grow silent when they were confronted and contradicted by these angry men they went right ahead with what God what God called them to do preaching Their method for missions in the book of Acts was simple. Whenever they entered a new city or province, they began their ministry in the synagogue. After all, it only makes sense to start with those who have the greatest familiarity with the one true God and who have been waiting for the Messiah. Jesus did the same thing. He told his disciples in Matthew 10 verses 5 and 6 to go first to the lost sheep of Israel. In Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, it says that the preaching of the gospel is to begin in Jerusalem first and then go to all nations. So this is why Paul and Barnabas spoke as they did in verse 46. The Jews were God's chosen people and therefore they had the first option, if you will, of responding to the gospel. But on this day, as on many other occasions, God's people of promise rejected the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. They were literally throwing away their opportunity for salvation and eternal life and incurring God's judgment. And this is another important thing for us to understand, brothers and sisters. People perish in their sins because they refuse to believe in Christ. They reject the truth claims of Scripture and the offer of forgiveness given through Jesus Christ, and thus they incur God's judgment for eternity. But we need to understand in the wider perspective of redempted history that even this too is part of God's plan. Romans chapter 11, Paul is addressing this issue with the Jews. In Romans 11 verse 25, Paul says even to the Gentiles in Rome, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That's what we're seeing borne out here in the book of Acts. And so Paul and Barnabas continued to teach this to the Jews. In verse 47, they quote Isaiah 49.6. In Isaiah 49.6 it says, "It is Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul and Barnabas cited this text from Isaiah for two reasons. First, to remind the Jews that the Gentiles have been part of God's saving purpose all along. But secondly, they also quoted this to proclaim to the Gentiles that the way of salvation was open to them. Their own people were rejecting the good news of the Savior Messiah, but that didn't mean that Paul and Barnabas were going to pack up and go home with their tail between their legs. As Paul says here, they were commanded to go forth. Many people had already believed, so they boldly proclaimed that the way of the salvation was now open to Gentiles. They were bold. Now, brothers and sisters, why do Christians today so often lack boldness? I think one of the reasons is I think that we have come to believe a lie. We've come to believe the lie of our culture that says, you know what? Your religious faith is a very personal matter that I'm not meant to intrude upon. So we don't want to offend. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to appear intolerant. We don't want to make a scene and draw attention to ourselves. And as a result, when the least bit of criticism or persecution arises, we shrink back into the safety of spiritual anonymity. But brothers and sisters, let us look to Christ. Let us ask the question, what if Christ had lacked boldness? What if Christ, when the religious leaders were questioning him and pushing back against him, what if he had grown silent? What if Christ, when he saw the, the money changers in the temple defrauding God's people, what if he had shrunk back and been silent? What if Christ, when confronted with his crucifixion, had shrunken back in disobedience? The good news, brothers and sisters, is that Christ did none of those things. He was always compassionate. He was always loving. But his compassion was always wed wed with truthfulness. His compassion was always wed with faithfulness and fidelity to his Father and to his Father's will. Even when it cost him his life, his faithfulness, his, his boldness led him not only to the cross, not only to forgive his enemies from the cross, to plead with them for the Father. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is that very same boldness that guides Him now as our resurrected Lord in completing His Father's purpose through all of human history. Brothers and sisters, we have a bold Savior. Praise be to Him. And we are one with that same Savior. His boldness is our Boldness, His compassion is our compassion. His, his fidelity to the truth is our fidelity of, to the truth. Let us be a people who go forth boldly as Christ did. As Paul and Barnabas did. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is He not? May we be bold as our Savior is bold. We can be confident, therefore, in evangelism because of my third point. This is what what comes next in the text. The third thing we see in the text is the beauty of God's sovereignty and salvation. The beauty of God's sovereignty and salvation. Look at verse 48 of our text in Acts 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Paul and Barnabas, their holy boldness and obedience were rewarded with a harvest of souls. When the Gentiles in Poseidon Antioch heard what Paul and Barnabas said, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. What was a stumbling block to the Jews led to salvation and the fruit of worship among the Gentiles. And again, God said He would do this. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Can you just imagine the scene here with me as we think about this? We have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people praising and glorifying God because they heard the gospel message and believed in the Lord Jesus What an awesome work of God to behold. And yet Paul wants us to understand this was God's design. Look at verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Their salvation was a fruit of God's sovereign work. Appointed is from the Greek term tasso, which means to determine, to ordain, or to appoint. This is the truth of election that we find at many places in the Bible God had sovereignly set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work at the beginning of this chapter. He had guided them to Poseidon Antioch according to his divine timetable. And he used Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel message that would effect salvation in those that he had appointed unto eternal life. This gets back to a key understanding of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and rose from the grave, it wasn't just to open a door that says, you know, if you will come on in and be forgiven. No. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, he actually accomplished salvation. He purchased us with his blood. He gave to us all grace necessary, not only to save us, but to bring us to salvation, to grant us repentance and faith. So when Jesus died and rose again, he did not just create the possibility of salvation, he accomplished the certainty of salvation for all whom he had appointed, for every single person chosen by God. Ephesians 1, 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his gracious grace, which he has blessed us in with which he has blessed us in the beloved now my focus this morning is not to unpack the sovereign the the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation and and explore election and predestination in depth that's not the point of the sermon this morning but that is what is here in the text my purpose this morning is to remind us of the assured success of missions When we go out to take the gospel to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our schools, to our city, to the nations, we don't go forth just hoping that people will respond to the message and give their hearts to Jesus. We go forth preaching the truth with boldness and persuading men of the truth of salvation. We labor with God in kingdom building, knowing that God will definitely redeem men according to his plan and purpose. It's a certainty. Jesus even spoke of this as a certainty in John chapter 10. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. Let me just ask you a question. Did you hear any uncertainty in the words that Jesus spoke there? Jesus says, well, I I think I have other sheep and I hope that when the time comes, they believe me and receive me. Was, Was there that question in his mind? Was there an uncertainty in what he said? No. He says very definitively, I have other sheep. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. Brothers and sisters, there's no way to get around this teaching of Scripture. And I know it can be hard. I know it can be challenging. How do we reconcile human responsibility with divine sovereignty and salvation? Well, I think we have to follow, I think, wise words given to us by Charles Spurgeon. He was asked, how do you reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty? And he said, I see no need to reconcile friends. Friends. Both are taught as truths of Scripture. You are held responsible if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you reject the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. You are held responsible and you will suffer God's wrath for all eternity. And at the same time, God has purchased a people for His own possession. His work of missions is a certainty. And just as it happened in Acts 13, it happens in the world every day. Those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Brothers and sisters, this brings us right back really to my previous point of application. If we understand the certain success of evangelism, the certain success of world missions, we will go forth in the boldness of Christ our Savior. Jesus here in Matthew 9 did not say the harvest is possible. He said the harvest is plentiful. The success of world missions is assured. The harvest of souls is a divine certainty. So we can go forth confidently and boldly knowing that God's will shall be accomplished on this earth. One of the things that we've been doing this year, and I hope we haven't lost sight of, is our who's your one emphasis. And you know, Who's Your One is one of the first programs of our denomination that I actually think is a very biblical way to go about evangelism. It shouldn't take a church visitation program for us to go out and share the gospel with people. I have nothing against that. It's a valid strategy, but it really shouldn't take that. Every day we find ourselves, again, in our schools and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and at our kids' you know, ballet practice or ball practice, we find ourselves out in the community And as a matter of obedience and love for our Savior, we should be looking at and identifying people that we want to pray for, people that we want to speak warmly about Christ to, people that we want to invite into our homes so that they can see and experience the loving fruit of Christ through us in our own lives. And I don't say all this because I, as a pastor, somehow just want to push you into obedience. My hope and prayer is that as you behold Christ and as you seek to model your life after Christ, you will desire what Christ desires. And, brothers and sisters, Christ desires. Indeed, He is accomplishing the salvation of His people. Wonder of wonders. He's invited us to be part of that. It's not a burden. It's a privilege. That takes me to my final point, And I'll be brief here. The bounty of joy in service to Christ. The bounty of joy in service to Christ. When we see Christ for who He is, and when we model our lives after Him, and when we share His heart for, for His children, for the lost that He is gathering to Himself, brothers and sisters, there's a joy that is ours in that, right? There's a joy in that. That's all through this text. Those who had believed were rejoicing. You go down to Acts 13, beginning of verse 50. The Jews, they were still angry. And preaching, if preaching the gospel to the Gentiles made the Jews jealous and blasphemous, well, you can guess that seeing the Gentiles respond in faith and worship pushed them to a new level of outrage. So what did they do? We see in verse 50, they went to the devout women of prominence referring to the powerful Jewish women who held positions of prominence in the city. They went to the leading men of the city and they stirred up persecution. Do you know, have you ever done this? This is the word that's used in the Greek. Have you ever gone to like a really big ant pile, maybe when you're young, and you take a stick and you kind of stir it because you just want to see what happens? And it's a frenzy and it's a fury. That's a picture of what the Jews incited here. They went and stirred up everyone that was in power and turned it into a frenzy. These devout women and leading men swayed the local authorities to drive Paul and Barnabas out of their district. You know, just those swarming ants, they drive you away. That's what happened at the city of Sidon, Antioch. Paul and Barnabas left. Commentators believe that Paul was referring to this episode in 2 Timothy 3.11 and that he and Barnabas were perhaps even beaten with rods and whips as they were driven from the town. What did Paul and Barnabas do in response? They shook the dust from their feet and went on to Iconium. Now, what's the significance of shaking the dust from your feet? Well, here's what that means. Devout Jews, honestly, devout Jews, because they were racist, they believed that they alone were the chosen people of God. Whenever they would come, whenever they would travel home, whenever they were stepping out of Gentile lands back into the boundaries of Israel, they would take off their shoes and they would shake off the dust because they didn't want even the dust from Gentile nations polluting the ground in Israel. So for Paul and Barnabas to shake the dust from their feet outside of Poseidon Antioch meant that they effectively considered the Jews there to be no better than pagans. This is what Christ taught them to do, right? Luke 10, 10 through 12, Jesus said, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. That's why Paul and Barnabas did this. And yet we also acknowledge that even in the face of such persecution, they were joyful. Paul and Barnabas were joyful. The people that came to salvation, the Gentiles that came to salvation and beside in Antioch, they were joyful. And once again, this reflects the heart of Christ, right? What was Jesus' greatest joy? Jesus' greatest joy was doing the will of His Father. Jesus' greatest joy was in speaking the truth of His Father, exercising the authority His Father had given Him. Jesus' greatest joy was in laying down His life to accomplish the purpose of redemption, the covenant of redemption that He and the Father had worked out in eternity. Brothers and sisters, we can also know a bounty of joy and obedience to Christ regardless of the hardship. We see it all through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, the, that Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, the disciples, the apostles understood something we often forget. Christ is our joy. And if Christ is our joy, obeying like Christ will bring us joy. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you, my brothers and sisters in Morning View. Even the world hates you for what you stand for. Even when people turn against you for what you proclaim. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. And unless, you may not need this, but let me just give this to you as a bonus. No reward compares to God's reward. Amen.